Welcome to the Crafters Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Makers Mercantile, a space for fueling your creativity, inspiring you to make using any medium you feel passionate about. Their online shop carries supplies for sewing, weaving, knitting, crochet, dyeing, and more, plus curated gifts, books, craft storage, and apparel. You can find them at makersmercantile.com, but be sure to stay tuned towards the end of the show for an offer that especially you yarn crafters will not want to miss. This week I talked with my friend Amy Singer. She's the editor and publisher of Knitty, the longest living online knitting magazine. Amy's publication actually gave me my first break as a designer back in 2003, but our paths have crossed many, many times since then. We talked a bit about her guest spot on a TV show that I used to host, her allergy to a material that some would consider crucial in the industry we're in, knitting and crochet, what the genesis was for her launching a webzine pre-mainstream blog and social media days, how crowdfunding has completely changed her business, and about how somewhat common, although not often enough discussed, women's health issues can really harsh a gal's creative mellow. Amy is smart, open, and always fun to chat with. Let's meet her now. Amy Singer, thank you so much for being on Craftish. Hi, Vicki. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, friend. It's good to talk to you, as you always. Too. I know. I wanted to start, I was thinking about the other day, I was doing, you know, doing the research that I do, and even when I'm having friends on, and it occurred to me that how we actually met was when you were a guest on a show I used to host, Nitty Gritty, Mm -hmm. but if we take a step back, and I did tell this story for your own Patreon found, yeah. um, campaign, which we're going to talk about in a bit as well. All of this I, stuff. I didn't realize how uh, how interlinked a lot of the ways that we know each other are. Yeah. Um, one of the ways that helped me get the audition for Nitty Gritty was because you gave me the opportunity to have my very first design before I even knew at all what design was um, on Nitty, the magazine that you are the publisher for, the online magazine. And it was a guitar strap. Yep. Um, and because I had that pattern up, and I was—I also happened to be modeling it when I was pitching myself to this producer who I'd found, who had found me completely randomly. She had basically Googled for young hip knitters. Right. Uh, I, I was able to pitch myself and show her that I actually did know how to knit, and then she could also see my look and and that kind of thing. And so, um, because I could say go to knitty.com and I could show her and I could pull that pattern down. And I love and the thing that's great about the internet is that you don't have to dig way into you know go to the library and look up look it up on microfiche. Like people can still go to this you yeah, know it's still pattern there. now. And so it's <laughs> I love that it's still sort of it's a living reminder to me about how important our community and I, I wasn't even really a part of the community then is to sort of the rising tide of us all helping because I got that gig and then later I was able to have you on as a guest for you to then promote Nitty. Um, and I think, book. Yeah, and, yeah, and your book. And I think that that's so important that we remember that in the creative, just sort of in the creative community in general, how important it is, it is for us to sort of ebb and flow and help each other rise. So I just had a sort of a nice moment of, of just remembering. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. the first time we actually did face to face was on the floor of Stitches in Atlantic City. Does that sound right? See, but I think, but that was after Nitty Gritty. Was that after Nitty? It was. Um, oh, okay. It was because I, the reason why we would have met in Atlanta I think would have been because I was promoting the Southwest Trading Company yarn lines it was very new this was like if it was when I did Knitwit that's 2004 Oh, then maybe that's you're what right. I mean that's a long time ago because th- that's when Nitty Gritty first started right so you came onto the show and you talked about you had a new book out and you were talking about how you have a- an allergy to wool. Yes. Which is a little little weird. bit of an issue. It's not weird. It's just <laughs> a little bit more of an issue for yeah. for someone in the knitting and crochet industry than it might be for, say, an accountant. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Although, mind you, I, I have said on multiple occasions that it has saved me from like living in a box surrounded by Noro, because that's what I would be. I would be like, I would have bought all the wool if I was not allergic to it. Right. So can, can <laughs> you talk a, talk a little bit about how how you 
delved into a career of knitting and crochet while having to steer clear of a major material um, that's a foundation for the entire industry. Well, see, the one cool thing, I think, about being a knitting magazine editor, as opposed to a designer or any of the other subcategories that we have within our field, is that I don't have to knit. I do, and I love it. In fact, we can talk a little bit later about how I can finally come back to it after surgeries. But I don't have to knit, so I can look at it and appreciate it, but the fact that I can't touch it doesn't mean, it, it doesn't hinder me in my job. Um, it does make me more aware of all of the other fibers, which I think is an asset because there's an entire group of vegan vegetarians who don't want to use wool. Mm -hmm. And then there's lots of people like me who are either, you know, allergic or sensitive. Uh, so if, if they don't want to touch it because it doesn't feel good, then they're not going to use it either. So we already know wool's great. And that was the premise of that book I wrote, which is called No Sheep for You. But in having this perspective on how great the other fibers are, I think that's a benefit. I think that that's helped me in my career. Yeah, and I think that it was a nice wake-up call for me um, to speak to that same point when I had a friend who was vegan. I'm vegetarian, but I had a friend who was vegan right. who doesn't wear leather, like doesn't use animal products at all in any shape, way, or form. And mm -hmm. I had been sort of in that world of kind of yarn snobbery where yep. that sort of like looked down their nose at acrylic. And of course, later on, I had acrylic yarns, but... Um, and she said to me, but I would prefer that because it's not an animal product. And it sort of took me out and, and let me sort of look from a wider perspective at, yep. at approaches. Um, and then, of course, now there's amazing other fibers. Of well, all different Well, started in 2002, uh, which was just about the time that novelty yarns came and one novelty yarns did for the industry you know besides looking silly which was sort of the fun of it because it was so not traditional was that they let us think about fibers other than wool yeah and and consider them as actual viable alternatives and when we took away the frou-frou what we were left with was some really great stuff i mean i talked about um some of the the synthetics like polyester being sort of the the uncle that nobody wants to acknowledge is at the corner you know the corner of your room in your party and you need them but you don't really want to you know introduce them to everybody but all of these synthetics have a have a use uh in fact there are people who are allergic to nylon so you got to watch that as well but the whole point is it's not just about wool and as much as i adore elizabeth zimmerman and her legacy um you know she was really narrow-minded in that way and that's fine but it's good to know that we have other choices well, since you brought up Elizabeth Zimmerman, <laughs> uh, I, I, it, I was thinking about knitting without uh, without tears. Um, yeah. The other uh, when I was, you know, looking into your bio and that kind of thing, and you you have a general philosophy, and it's pretty, it's very similar to mine in, in a way that where you really pride yourself as a champion of the joys of mindless knitting. That yep. your teaching approach is very much from a perspective of you don't want to make people want to tear out their hair. And I'm all about accessibility of, of knitting and crochet. Talk a little bit about uh, why that approach is so important to you. Well, there are, I'm surrounded by all of these wonderful teachers. I mean, I, some of, of my closest friends in the industry are the teachers of the most complex stuff. And it doesn't suit my brain. And, and I tend to look at myself as sort of a test subject of almost any market. I am the the corner of the market that likes to relax when they knit and you know ripping stuff out because i made a mistake is not not relaxing but having to follow a chart and not be able to watch a television program while i knit that is actually anti-relaxing for me so when i hear about acres of stockinette being boring i get it but there is that beautiful joy of just settling into a repetitive motion that whole flow thing which i totally believe in um and it's so wonderful to me and so that's why i got so excited when when the century hit which sounds so funny but it's true and all of a sudden we had yarns that did all the work for us mm -hmm, so i didn't mm -hmm. have to think about weaving in ends and, and by the way if you're not familiar with what it's like to weave in ends as a non-wool knitter it sucks because wool hangs on to itself no the other grab. stuff doesn't yeah. exactly yeah. so you've got to learn special techniques so not having to actually change from one strand to another is so nice so i i'd like people to find sort of intelligent shortcuts. Uh, it doesn't need to be hard 
to look like it was hard. And honestly, I don't know that it has to look like it's hard to impress people, although some, you know, some people like that. I like people to look at, at what I've made and say, that is very lovely. But I don't care if it's because of what I did or because of the yarn itself. Right. Well, and I think that non-knitters are going to be impressed that you've made something regardless of what it is so it's really it's it's really the same way that women are the worst judges of other women like we're the hardest on each other it's the same thing knitters are the worst judges of other other knitters it's really about whether or not you care because there is a bit of a snobbery between no question you know uh, if you're working bicolored brioche or if you're working in garter stitch scarves and I always tell people I don't give a shit what you're knitting I just want you to be creative like I want you to do you well, I love that book that Sally Melville did that's 100% garter stitch. That book is is wonderful. Uh, and it may not stitch, suit everybody's yeah. aesthetic, yeah. but there are some, she's done some brilliant things with just garter stitch. And some of Stephen West's best designs before he started to go crazy with color yeah. were different uses of knit versus purl stitches and garter versus stockinette and how amazingly powerful those two things can be in terms of just vertical and horizontal lines. Well, I mean, I just wrote my latest book is called We Garter Stitch. And it's just because I think that garter stitch looks super modern. And I you love can, it. Well, yeah, and, Debbie Bliss has been keeping that alive for years. God yeah, bless her. She, you know what? She has. Yeah. She's she's yeah. a champion. Um, yeah. We got off on a tangent there. But you, Sorry. You, no, 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 you started Nitty in 2002 right. when blogs were not really, they were around, but they were more of a novelty than anything else. It was like yeah, a sort of like a quirky techie thing, you know, that yeah. people. And yeah. so where, what was the genesis of starting an online magazine when, you know, patterns online were, were not really all that easy to find and there weren't other publications of that sort at the time? Well, it all really comes back to my day job because I had spent 20 years, well, up to that, it was about 17 years, of proofreading and advertising. Mm-hmm. And it was all print. You know, the internet had come in, but nobody considered that any kind of viable medium in 2002. And all I remembered was that feeling, you know, when you make a mistake in your professional life, and it's the kind of thing that may impact you in terms of how people look at you, but more importantly, cost money. The fixing of any kind of mistake in a print environment is huge between slow redoing the film and if they've already printed it reprinting it's unbelievably terrifying so right away i had i had realized a while earlier that this was this medium where if you made a mistake you just go fix it you didn't have to do new film and new printing and you know no upset clients you just fixed it and so in that way i was sort of liberated by those possibilities and then I started to see patterns around, and I had been doing these super simple web pages, sort of like my knitting philosophy, you know, make them clean and beautiful. It doesn't have to be fancy. Did you um, have th- a tech background at all, or you were just messing around? You were just interested? Uh, I, I started out in high school. I fell in love with buttons when I took uh, television courses at, at the end of my high school career, um, and then went and took a degree in radio and television at Ryerson in Toronto. So I always loved pressing buttons and moving switches, and part of that then turned into falling in love with computers when yeah. my husband's time and I, you know, embraced Mac in 1984, right when everybody else did, you know, at the very, very beginning. And I guess I was a reasonable early adopter of the web. So I always just liked techie stuff. I'm yeah. quite the queen of the gadgets. So it didn't, you know, it wasn't a big surprise. And I'd been doing web pages since 1996 when I, ha- um, I, it's a long story, but as a proofreader, you're the first one laid off when the budget gets tightened. Because yeah. they think of you as, as a luxury. So I had already taught myself other skills like doing these simple web pages. So I sort of had this little toolbox of, of skills and I wanted to put them to use. And I also was bored to stiff as a proofreader. Yeah. Because it's a hard, it's and, and thankless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I found these patterns on the web, um, and there was like one over here and one over there and one in someplace else. And the only way we could find each other was from like the knitting web ring, which all the time was broken. You'd click on a link to go to the next blog in the ring, and it wouldn't work if someone screwed up the code. And it was just really hard to find each other. So had you been knitting for years at this point? I learned to knit when I was six. Okay. Right. So it was just something you were doing on, on as a hobby. But, it, but sporadically, which right. is, I think, what happens to some, especially, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, as an as a allergic knitter, I'm, there's not much to touch. 
So the good stuff didn't start coming around until the end of the 90s. And then they started releasing these beautiful hand-dyed silks and big skeins. Mm -hmm. And that changed some stuff for me, too. So I was a really active knitter by the time I decided to start knitting. So knitting rings weren't working. You realized how hard it was. You decide, I think I can put together a magazine. Yeah, it was was very... Judy Garland and, and all that, you know, let's put on a show in a barn. And I saw, I laid out the, the floor plan for the barn and I put up this ridiculously pompous post saying, I can do this and here are my skills and none of us are getting paid and let's all do it together. And it actually happened. I couldn't believe it actually happened. But people got excited. Because it was off. new and exciting. and It was. It was really neat. And they believed that I would follow through because why would they send me anything? How would they trust that I wouldn't screw up their work? But they did. And then... In, in this beautiful, you know, internet innocence, way back when, when things were so new, there were barely trolls. Well, there were trolls, but not for us. The feedback was a thousand percent positive. There was not a single dissenter. Everybody was so excited that this could even exist. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it was wonderful. And then, you know, we never have had the kind of negative uh, pushback that some places have. But at f- the first issue was just this huge, warm, worldwide hug. I mean, you say that that you were surprised that you don't you that people didn't think, oh, they might screw up my work. I think that people being just gen- in general naive yeah. about the internet in general, it probably didn't even occur to them that that could happen. This was just like a, yeah. all right, this sounds fun, let's do Plus it. We, were knitters. we trusted each other. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably yeah. true as well. Like I'm not some big conglomeration company. I'm just me. Yes, that accessibility was there. Yes. And an actual dialogue, an actual, like, yep. you know, you email somebody here and then they email you back. It wasn't sort of like an envelope sent to an editor at a magazine that, that some intern might or may or may not, you know, yep. return back yep. with the self addressed stamp. I mean, it just, it was a conversation in a way that there wasn't yeah. a conversation in that community thus far. You're right. How, how has your publication changed or been affected over the past you know what are you at 13 years now it's 15, 15 years 2002 oh my goodness um, I know. Yeah. now that everybody and their grandmother has blogs and also publishes their own content on mm-hmm. you know how, how does that affect you as an editor and as a publisher and as a publication it, it's been interesting to watch the change. Um, in some ways, it made it harder. In some ways, it made it easier. W- what I had to do when I put together a call for financial support from our readers, which is that Patreon thing we're going to talk about, I had to sit back and look at who we were and why we should be allowed to continue to exist. And right away, the first thing that came to mind were all of these people that we've helped get that first step on the ladder to launch their careers. And when we launched in 2002, there was no Ravelry. It came along in 2005, I think. And it's been brilliant, and it's given this place for people to show off their work. But it is a huge place, and it's very hard to stand out. Mm-hmm. So that's what I realized. I put all of those things together in my head and thought, well, not only do we give people a place to, to get that first step, but we can help them step a little higher above the huge pool of designers that are available. In addition, we also have these, you know, people that we now can pay quite nicely who can come in and make their pa- patterns look as professional as possible. And we don't care who you are. If your work is good, you will be in. And for some people, their work may look good and then we'll get into editing it and it will need some some hand-holding and massaging because they're brand new. You know, they're not professionally tra- trained designers, some of them. And they will learn things from our tech editors that will help them in their careers, which mm-hmm. I've heard time and time again. Mm-hmm. So we're, I don't know, what do you want to call it, an incubator? Like a publishing incubator? We're, we're, we're like the ultimate grassroots, pick up the people, everybody, like the, the cheerleaders, stand there and put the, the designer at the top of the pyramid. Here's what they did. Come and look at this. You mentioned that when you put out that first issue, it was, you know, put out for free, blood, sweat, tears, and joy. At, yep. what, at what point were you able to pay people? We started to charge, well, we had to get advertising first because there was no, I had no plan for revenue. I am really, ideally, I am not a business person. I'm a, I'm a creative person more than anything. And so to even get my head around how to make money out of this didn't 
begin to occur to me till people started to offer money for advertising. And then I started to look at that as a possibility. And a year after we launched, we took our first ads. And the next issue, we paid some ridiculous thing like 20 bucks a pattern. It was nothing. But it was it was what we could afford. And we were able to pay something. And it's just grown from there. Yeah, and I have to say that, and I remember because I'm pretty sure that I got paid um, for that guitar oh. strap because I think that I that would have been like 2003, 2004. Yeah. Um, and I I remember just being happy that there was value shown. Good. And that's I good. feel like that's yeah. still a thing. You know, I mean, there's still it's a big conversation. It's a big conversation, um, and. You know, maybe not, maybe not the time to to go into it deeply, but I, I think the point is is that it's really it's really important for publications to be transparent about what they can afford. But as soon as they can afford anything, to pay yeah. it, even if it yeah. seems often it's called an honorarium, just so that the amount that's what it's called that's, is it still called that? It, yeah, yeah, that's um, what we call it. Um, so, which is a nod to. This is not this is not necessarily your value. We're telling you up front that this is what it is. We would love you to be a part of it, but we understand that it may not be, you know, up to a, up to like a living yeah. wage or whatever. And yeah. I think we're sort of at this like yes, we are way into the internet now, but we're still it you know, we're still in its infancy in so many ways. We're only about 20 mm-hmm. years into it that there still is not a standard for and not just in our industry, just for designers, influencers, a new term, bloggers, type, any kind of creative any creative type, type that's and, illustrators, and, painters, absolutely, painters. and yeah. and because um, content consumption is insatiable, companies have not figured out how to put you know how to put that into their budget while while still getting a return on that investment and so they tend to try and say exposure is the way and that's a real issue and so I, I just wanted to give you a props that you paid as soon as you could and I've never I've prided myself too just as an independent contractor who hires other independent contractors at never asking anybody to work for free ever um, because if we don't value each other Nobody yeah. outside of our little cubby hole of industry will either. Yeah. And it's our job. It's our job to sing our own value. So, Well, there, there's a, a big sort of this overlap of, for, first of all, doing it for exposure, I think, made sense for about a year. <laughs> when when we were all sort of scrambling to find an audience, but once everybody found an audience, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so when we were working for free, I didn't feel bad about not paying him because nobody was getting paid. But the moment I made money, I you know in my own head, I couldn't sleep with you know sleep at night unless I'd said, the moment we make money, as soon as our bills are covered, it goes to the designers. Yeah. And then when it started to bump up, we raised salaries, we raised salaries, and then it went down, and we held salaries, and that was that was the hard part. Because I wasn't going to pay them less than 75 bucks a pattern. It was gross. I couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. But in the same way, because you had that, that you know, ethics, you had that, you know, foundation of ethics, you created a community through your publication, both readers and designers, who then circle back 15 years later when you need to redefine the way that you the structure of your business they came back to support you so beautiful in a way that i don't believe would have ever happened if you hadn't started with the foundation of knowing that there was value in both reader and designer thank you yeah i I, i'd like the way you put that I, i will give huge credit to what i learned from reading amanda palmer's book the art of asking uh, in terms of how to appreciate that you have created an audience and you have given to them and then how it's okay to ask back once you've done that, if you need help. Well, let's talk crowdfunding and, and, you know, I know a lot of our listeners are not looking to be professional creative types of any form, but I think that there is value in this conversation in general, because I really think it is the new beginning of financing dreams, not to be sure over, so. not to be over dramatic, yeah. but I think no. that it opens up worlds for whether our listeners are looking to to write a book on any topic, an ebook, a publication like yourself, uh, 
put out a CD for their band, create a prototype for their next invention. They're, the world, you know, the world is literally our oyster now, but the foundation is community. And we're lucky to work in an industry where community is at the very core how we all yep. exist. Yep. If we don't have knitters and crocheters, we don't have jobs. So we're <laughs> we're already we're already in. Like yeah. we're community in from the beginning. <laughs> so for me, for me, well, we had a leg up there. But that's not true for every industry. Now, I mean, you have completely changed the structure of your business. You yeah. contributed at I taught a online course for Creative Live that's still available called Monetize Your Craft. And in it, um, you were kind enough to give me a quote. And I want to start there. And then I, I would love for you to talk um, about your decision to change that structure. You said, one of the secrets of success for successful crowdfunding is building the crowd first, your audience, people that know what you create and like it and have liked it for a while and trust that you won't take their support and not deliver as promise. You you said that, yeah, a strong track record. That's what builds credibility. And it's the key for asking fans for support. Yeah. Tell me about what this change, well, the genesis for this change and the journey that has happened to get you where you are today based on crowdfunding. Start at the very core for, for in case people don't know what crowdfunding is. Okay. So I think a lot of us have heard about Kickstarter, which is where you come up with an idea for a project, lay out the details of the project for people. Say, if you support me at this level, you will get this reward. If, if you support me at this level, you will get this reward. And in doing that, fund that one single project, which is great. But the need was uh, shown early on in, in this sort of crowdfunding environment um, to lots of us without a solution that we needed ongoing funding in the same way that, you know, Michelangelo had funding from the Medicis. Um, and basically, it's patronage. It's giving money to a creative individual organization or whatever for them to go and create what they create on an ongoing basis without you micromanaging what it is they do with the money. Right. And we should pause here and, and say that the reason... And this probably goes back to what we were talking about before, sort of, you know, the bombardment of of blogs that are producing content. Advertising has been, advertising dollars has been way thinned out because companies are now paying for um, ambassadors, influencers, uh, blog ads. They're they're having to spread their, legitimately, they're having Mm -hmm. to spread their their ad dollars differently. So as a magazine, publishers, both print and online, have really felt, and book publishers, have really (laughs) felt the brunt of that, probably, arguably more than any other industry. It's, yeah, I mean, that was how we were funded from the beginning. It was always advertising supported. We were advertising supported and proudly. Uh, but uh, like everyone else, we watched, first of all, the economy, economy tank in 2008 mm-hmm. and recovered to a certain degree. But then what we're finding is that there are so many more online avenues for, for advertisers to spend their money with that putting them in just one place is less appealing. And there's still a mindset of if I give you $100, I want $100 in sales back through clicks, which does not just because it is trackable. And I have a background in in direct marketing and, you know, print advertising from years, Uh, just because you can actually track theoretically the dollar from when someone clicks to when they buy does not mean that your ad didn't work. Because if I don't know if you've seen this, but in Canada, all of a sudden, Trivago, as an example, which is a the um, place that where you can go book a hotel room, they have bought every possible moment on the CBC. It is on every commercial, and they have been doing this since the Olympics. And they are, that is awareness. There is no dollar return for dollar spent. That is building a brand. And that has been the foundation of advertising since the beginning. But for some reason, the trackability of internet advertising allowed people to delude themselves that it had to be dollar for dollar. Mm -hmm. So it went away. And so we had to come up with something. And thankfully, other people were starting to come up with solutions before I realized I need them. And I'm hoping other people will start to to hang on to them as well, because they're, they're really good solutions. So you decided to hook up with this company, Patreon. Yes. And then what from there? Well, Patreon was started by a musician 
in order to keep creating music and music videos on a regular basis. Uh, it's now turned into a hugely successful company, uh, which is not surprising to me because it was it was cleverly done uh, by the right people and then supported by wonderful creative people. Uh, and it is the perfect platform to go in and, and offer your skills, your the, the products of your creative output, whatever they are. I mean, there's writers, uh, comic book creators, lots of podcasters, video podcasters, everything. And we're, I think there's not a lot of magazines. We're one of the few magazines, but it works brilliantly for us. And it allows us to say, if you give us a certain amount of funding, whether you specify per month, per product you release, so for this, us, that's four times a year, okay. um, then that funding comes in. And yes, it will fluctuate up and down depending on people who leave and people who join. But hopefully overall, because there's lots of these little one, two, three, five dollar donations in there, it all evens out and the upward trend continues, Knockwood, you know, year on. So it brings in enough money and it actually did within the first two weeks that all of the, the financial problems we had had in the past were pretty much erased. We then, it's not like we could pay debt back because thankfully, you know, with this low overhead we have with me having my office being my second bedroom, um, the overhead is as minimal as possible. So then it's just a matter of giving people raises to a wage that is appropriate for the amount of work they're doing. And it felt wonderful. The next issue I was able to give um, designers, columnists, and all our staff a raise. And it that's stuck and it's wonderful. That is, to me, this is like this is the epitome of creativity. When you figure out creative funding for yeah. a creative business, and you can hold your head up high because you're paying a living wage in an industry that historically does not do that. Yeah, well, we're we're not the same as a print magazine. Print magazines pay tons more, three to five hundred bucks a pattern, I think, is the rate. We're paying two. 150 to 2 depending on on the the complexity of the pattern and if are your rights you know, different though our rights have always been different our rights have always stayed with the designer thank you for mentioning that so that instead of me giving you the pattern for $500 I I, I loan it to you for $200 and for th 3 months when the issue is live or they loan it to only, you yeah yeah they loan it to us so it's only on our site, the moment the issue is then in quotes in the archive, you know, it's it, the new issue comes out, they could take it and self-publish. Uh, often they will add exercises or different features and put it on Ravelry. They will put it in books. They could do anything they want with it. It's always theirs. They just loan it to us exclusively. You're essentially kids. licensing it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, theoretically, based on what we have in an agreement, we could take all the patterns that we've ever published and put them in a book and release them without having to pay anybody anymore. But I would never do that because that's gross. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons we've never published a book because I cannot quite figure out how to deal with the paperwork of all the, the legality. But my point is that the creative work stays with the designer. They, they own it. They've created it. They should be able to do whatever the heck they want with it. And the fact that they lend it to us for three months exclusively is wonderful. Right. And so people can go to Patreon, they can sign up with Nitty, and they you can, there are d several different levels uh, that you can, what do you call it? Not donate. Rewards. To. They're rewards, basically. They're, uh, they're, we call it patronage. You know, you can become a patron at anything from a dollar and up. Uh, at $2, you get a thank you on the website. Uh, at five, you start to get early access. So you get 24-hour early access to the magazine, which people love. And knock what it mostly works, which is cool. Because yeah. technology and all that other stuff changes things. At $12 and up, we have web chats where we can sit down and, and talk together. And there are other tangible things that I mail out. And I'm right now in the middle of sending out this past year's rewards, which is an exercise in... Um, letter shopping and fulfillment reminding me of my di direct mail days. Yeah. It's hysterical. So I'm doing things now that the people I worked with used to have to do. And oh, I appreciate them so much more. Ooh, does that mean I'm going to be getting a package soon? You will. That's exciting. Well, I know. They're all they're all sitting, actually, a good portion of them are in my car. The, the post is on its way here. Uh, and it's, yeah, I can't wait to get those in the mail and then start to see things show up on Twitter and Instagram and all that. 
That's really fun. And 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 just so great that you've been able so many magazines and yes, digital does have much lower overhead uh, than than print, obviously, but so mm-hmm. many of every type of publication are folding because of the new structure. So that's pretty amazing that you've been able to keep it keep it going. You talked about uh, you talked about having sort of a techie background in a way and but you've kept you've kept the overall format of Nitty the same over the past 15 years? It, it What I mean is, is you haven't transferred over to like an issue or or, no. or an interactive type um, digital platform. It, was that a conscious decision? Well, um, it's been interesting because again, my expertise in terms of techie stuff only goes so far. Mm-hmm. And my ex-husband is a real clever programmer guy and he still works with me on Nitty. Um, and he was the one who actually took us from the standard uh, simple web page with scroll down links as opposed to a flip through magazine into a uh, scalable or a, a resizable magazine. So now from the last issue, which is first fall 2016, it is automatically resizable to whatever desi- device you're looking on, which mm. is the first time we've ever done that. And that was a huge overhaul on the back end that nobody could see, but I think it, it's paying off really well and we're hoping to roll that back even further. And we have an additional technology improvements, which we're planning. They're just not ready for uh, talking about yet. But part of it was lack of skill. You know, I don't feel confident in releasing something that I can't maintain myself if it's so much more complicated. And I know HTML and I know CSS, but I'm not a master of really either. Uh, My skills lie more in Photoshop and, and, you know, words. Although right now my words are escaping me, but <laughs> but that's where my expertise lies. So I was focusing on this layout works. Let's just keep putting out good quality patterns. And then now we've got this money coming and I don't have to worry about being able to pay our bills next month. Now we can start to make this the, the magazine look different. But I've never wanted to flip through. It, it's never seemed to me to be ideal because there's a restriction to page size when you have a flip through. Mm. So when you have something that's shaped like a Vogue magazine, you know, any kind of print magazine, you have to fit you it have to, to cut a page. for content. Yeah. Yeah. For, for and I love that we don't have to do that. I can put as many page pictures as I want and they scroll down. So now that we have this responsive website, it'll fit on your your iPhone just as well as it'll fit on your iPad or your huge monitor. And I don't have to worry about that. So I think it actually suits us really well. What's the most creative aspect of editing a magazine for you? I love the choosing of the patterns. And I love, because of the way we work, because we don't send out a call saying, this season is all about cables and baubles. We send out you know, a typical thing saying we want cardigans, we want pullovers, we want unique socks, we want things that you've never thought of before. It puts, it's not the onus on the designer, it gives the designer freedom to do whatever the hell they're feeling like wearing, which is really what Nitty started out being. Like, what are you knitting for yourself? Give us the pattern for that. So, although there are designers who just design for audiences, a lot of people design for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now I'm craving a crop sweater, let's say, or all of a sudden I want all my things to be vests. And then we start to see lots of vests. It's like any other fashion trend. It hits us really soon because we don't plan a year in advance. We're about three to six months in advance. So we can respond quite quickly to whatever's happening, you know, on the streets. So we get whatever we get and we let people show their own creativity that way. And it's so much fun. So I, I don't know what I'm getting when I check the email box for our submissions. And we just evaluated for winter and I'm sending out those emails in the next day or two. And that's winter this year, 2016. Uh, so it's not like it's going to be coming out next year. So the, the yarns are current. The colors are theoretically what people want now. Uh, the styles are what people are craving. And sometimes I'll open things up and I'll, there'll be, you know, a dead fish hat. <laughs> out of nowhere that made honestly that pattern made me laugh every time I opened the email for at least a month and that's the greatest joy it's so much fun so it sounds like instead of there being you know a, a thematic grid you really go more on gut and feel like how a design makes you feel when you're choosing yeah yep. um it, it I think we are I hate that they're, they're becoming cliche but the word grassroots it describes us because we are what the people want because they've done this for themselves very often and then they share it with us. So it's not like us, you know, imposing our style on people. The way we get to express our style as a magazine is by what we choose to publish. So if we don't publish novelty yarns, that expresses our style. Yeah. 
Yeah. One of the things that I think that we as women don't talk about very often um, when it comes to creativity is some of our health issues that we all have as we get older, but even, you know, even, even starting younger. And, and the reason why I think it has something to do with creativity is because it often affects us greatly. Holy Um, cow. Yeah. And when you feel bad, the creative juices aren't going to flow. Never, never mind. You may not physically be able to, for you, play ukulele. Yes. Uh, because I th- believe that you had some work done on your wrists or, mm. you know, for many, just even get out of bed. I know that you've yep. had some some health um, issues recently that you have thankfully recovered from. But I would I would love to talk a little bit about mm-hmm. about just our physical health um, as creative beings. Well, regarding the hand, I had I've had carpal tunnel since 1999 in both wrists, but really badly in the right wrist. I'm right-handed. And it became an issue. It wasn't just knitting. It was knitting and keyboarding and mousing and quilting, which I was doing actively at the end of the 90s, and even riding my scooter because my throttle hand was my right hand. So to turn the throttle up and go forward, I, you know, I'm doing exactly what I shouldn't be doing, which is putting my wrist in a very acute angle. And it got to the point where... About six years ago, I was waking up with with sharp, stabbing nerve pain at night. That settled, and then it just became numbness and buzzing and pain for the last few years. To the point where all of a sudden, everything I did, which I enjoyed, which was ukulele, riding my scooter, and knitting, all of that was just not enjoyable anymore. And it was horrible. So I finally decided to actually take care of myself beyond the rest I should have done and all of that that would have maybe prevented me getting these injuries in the first place. And I went and had the surgery. And it's it's wonderful. I mean, it, it, it's not an instant fix. It, you know, you've got to deal with the fact that we have 16 years worth of nerve damage that needs mm-hmm. to recuperate. And, and it may not fully recover, but the numbness is, is 99% gone. The pain is 99% gone. And now I'm working on building up strength. And the only trouble I have, the lingering issue, is that I have gotten out of the habit of knitting for relaxation because it wasn't relaxing for the last three years. Right. (laughs) So I'm working on reminding myself that, oh, yeah, that's right. I can do this now. And you can do it now. I can. You're able to. Absolutely. I can't wait. I have sweaters that are on the needles, and I just need to get back to them. But I kind of got a double whammy if we're talking about surgeries. And I had the the, uh, carpal tunnel surgery in March, and a month and a half later, my uterus decided to explode. (laughs) So that had to come out. Man, (laughs) when it rains, it pours. It does. And I I had always wondered if it was going to go because my mom had had to have hers out. Um, And, you know, as a family on our side, the women have problematic Mm -hmm. hoo-hoos. But things were happening that were so painful, so cripplingly painful and it wasn't endometriosis it was actually endometrial hyperplasia if you want to get real technical what is that it's a a thickening of the lining of the uterus and instead of throwing out extra tissue what it's doing is it's it's so thick that um it it starts to potentially turn your lining into cancer Mm. and so what had to happen was i went in for a biopsy which sounds really harmless it is an endo, uh, a uterine biopsy is probably one of the most painful things I've ever had to experience. And I had one test where they go in and they snip a tiny piece of tissue. And I'm telling people this because I didn't know what to expect. And no, I think, it's I, important I think this is really know. important when you have yeah. when you have a forum like this that we yep. that we talk to each other about it. Yeah. So I, I go in and they take this uterus, which I guess is sort of the size of your fist, depending on. How, you know how your body's built and they they reach in with this little snippy thing and they take a piece of tissue yeah now if you have cancer how do you know they got the right piece of tissue to find it yeah so they did this thing they found that it was slightly weird they found the hyperplasia whatever but what what's going to happen is a long-term solution was to get that same test every three to six months for potentially the rest of my life pass exactly <laughs> at which point the having it removed having my or my uterus out was simple and the thing that I did that most people probably wouldn't is I had the whole shebango because there's ovarian cancer in the family. So the ovaries are gone too. Uh, oh, yeah. Surgery- if that runs in your yeah. family, that to me, that seems like a no but Like, clean house. Take it all out. <laughs> well, so I'm 54, which means, you know, I'm not going to be having 
theoretically, I would have been having periods much longer anyway. Sure. So I don't really need the hormones. But I'll tell you, estrogen, as women, I don't think we realize how, how much estrogen affects every aspect of our human physicality. It is so essential. And I'm lucky in that it hasn't been a big problem. But I think my brain is missing a couple of neurons ever since the really? stopped. So do you have to be on lifelong medication now to balance that no, out? No. no. Um, without getting too technical, uh, I will tell you that uh, oral estrogen is something that they don't give you anymore unless you're having debilitating hot flashes. And I'm actually on an antidepressant for other reasons that also prevents me from having hot flashes. So I've been lucky. However, um, for the personal comfort of your private area, uh-huh. uh, without estrogen, it can get dry. And yeah. so there is a topical thing that you can insert with a syringe a couple times a week. Uh, not my favorite thing. There is no glamour in being a woman. I no, would just like to it. throw that out there. No, it's nothing glamorous, but you know what? It takes about 30 seconds. It's done. It happens twice a week. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't hurt. You know, it's just something that to be done. We, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, offline um the whole hysterectomy process is a lot easier that my mom had one when she was actually my age um the age i am now and i remember like she had like huge like tons of staples in her stomach and it was kind of a big deal and you were saying that that the recovery process was actually easier than your carpal tunnel surgery it was i was uh, really uncomfortable for a couple days i was mildly uncomfortable for a few more days and i was sleeping back on my stomach by about the sixth day which is crazy. Um, I did feel a little bit because they had removed this thing about the size of your fist from my cavity down there that you could feel things moving around a little bit. It felt a little wiggly. Oh, but that's weird. It is. It's disturbing. You know, when things move that you're not used to moving. You know, you've had children. I have it. So you're used to some things being different down there. But I've never had anything go on there. It still was not that bad. And after about three weeks. I had no idea. You know, the incisions healed really fast, but that assumes you've had laparoscopic surgery. Um, if you have to have it where they cut the top of you open, that's a good six weeks of sure. you being out of commission. But luckily, I had a surgeon who kept me on the table two hours longer in order to avoid the incision. So I love her. Wow. <laughs> it was great. I, and that's why anyone who was asked, and a few people have asked lately since I've been really public about talking about it, um, they shouldn't be scared if they have a good doctor. And they should look forward to the relief of not having to worry about their body basically having a mind of its own from the waist down. Yeah, and I think it's important that we talk about this also, that we as women should know that it's not okay to be in pain all the time. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm going through that myself right now. I, we don't know what's going on, but I have right. constant pain in my ovary. And uh, they just found that I might have a what's called a teratoma, which is just a, a benign cyst, but it's it's can be gross uh, right. for a lack of better term <laughs> and potentially endometriosis or maybe not like they don't yeah. know unless they go in uh, but the conversations that I'm able to have with you and with other women I think are important for us to have on a public forum so that we can stay well informed about our own bodies um, yeah. and and be able to tell each other that no you shouldn't be in pain all the time like that's, no, that shouldn't and, be a thing especially this kind of pain there's something sometimes nothing will touch it so you're sitting on the couch and you have a heating pad on you maybe and you know especially if you're in that lovely happy mindless knitting zone you may be able to pick up something and knit some makers of stock in it and distract yourself but with me i was not able to do anything i was writhing around on my couch yeah uh, and I, it was. It felt honestly like someone had taken something inside me and had squeezed it to the point that it was like a balloon that was going to pop, and it would stay that way for hours. Yeah. And leave wouldn't help. Nothing would help. So that sounds what awful. Have they been saying? It, it's horrible. And what have they been saying lately? That even average period pain is worse than most guys experience on on any kind of daily basis. Hmm. And they just, you know, it's just sloughed off like it's nothing. What a horrible choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it is debilitating. The fact that, that we can, as women, can deal with it and still function at all is kind of miraculous. But I, I am not any kind of um, advocate of, of suffering through it. You know, if you can get it fixed, like, get the damn thing out. Yeah. You know, or, or you, yeah, I mean, for me, it's not pulling it out. It's just getting some stuff cleaned out or whatever. But, right. but the point is, and the only reason that I even brought it up for, you know, for the purposes of this particular podcast is that I really believe that being creative beings makes us open beings. And if we're open, then we have conversations. If we have conversations, then all around the world is a better place. And we can't be creative if we are curled up on the couch in a ball. 
No, not at all. And and when I started talking about this on Twitter, I first I was hinting around it and I was using all these euphemisms. And then I realized like what is happening to me has happened probably to like 20% of the people my age who are reading this Twitter. Why shouldn't I talk about it mm-hmm. and make them feel less alone? Um, and so I did and I felt better because everybody was writing with support. No one wrote and said, oh, this is horrible. Shut up. Stop talking about it. You know, we have to take care of each other. And this is this is just natural, you know, things that are happening to us. Luckily, nowadays, medicine is good and it has improved and they can fix things. So I was grateful for that. Well, we'll continue taking care of each other, having conversations like this and knitting amazing things for each other from Nitty um, and, you know, listening and hopefully reaching out and being open to each other. Thank you so much for for being you, Miss Singer. I just enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy you um, and all too. you do. I always love talking to you. You're fun. Oh, well, right back at you. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. The latest issue of Nitty is available online now. For more info, photos of some of the designs from the issue, and to learn more about Amy's Patreon campaign, check out this episode's show notes page at vickihowell.com craftish. Thanks again to our sponsor, Makers Mercantile, who would like to celebrate our guest, Amy Singer, by offering listeners a special deal on all haiku yarns. Right now, you can buy four and get one free, just in time for autumn knitting. All you need to do is use code VickiMakes at checkout. That offer ends on September 29th. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. We are off for the next few weeks while I'm prepping for a product launch, then traveling to the UK for the knitting and stitching show at Alley Pally. If you'll be there on October 6th, 7th, and 8th, please stop by my booth and say hello. I would love that. While I'm gone, though, you might want to take the time to go back and listen to past Craftish episodes that you either loved enough to listen again or you might have missed. Over the past 24 shows, there have been engaging conversations with different types of creative people, ranging from textile designers to musicians, knitters to photographers, fine artists to songwriters, crocheters to novelists. You get the idea. You can pretty much pick your creative poison and stay inspired. Then, once you've gotten yourself all caught up, binge listened, as it were, you can tune in again on October 20th for the next new episode. Until then, follow at Vicki Howell on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and don't forget to take a little time to make something and put it out into the world. Breathe in, craft out.